0: If you like the content Unfound provides, please support this podcast at Patreon, PayPal, or YouTube. Unfound's first episode debuted on the first Friday of September 2016. Yes, seven years ago today. During that time, this podcast has covered 303 disappearances. To recognize this anniversary, you get to hear the first interview I ever conducted. Then after, I will reflect on some of the big moments in Unfound's history. I'm at Densel, and this is Unfound. Now I have Mrs. Mary Lau, the mother of Suzanne. Uh, welcome to the show, Mary.
1: Thank you. Yes. Yeah.
0: Let's ta- start with you just talking a little bit about Suzanne. What was going on in her life at the time? Um, maybe a little bit about her upbringing, her education, her interests.
1: Okay. Um, well, Susie. Uh, Susie was born in April of 1990. Uh, 1978. And, uh, you know, right from the beginning, we kind of knew she was, she had a lot, you know, of intelligence. My husband always said there was, you know, he could see that in her. And as she, uh, you know, grew up, uh, by the time she was about nine years old, she was writing poetry. And mm-hmm. um, from writing poetry to uh, wanting to, you know, she started to hear about uh, computers, and uh, I think our first computer was a Texas Instrument computer, mm-hmm. and she really was fascinated with those. And uh, she, uh, you know, really got into the computer area, and uh, you know, eventually, you know, would take computers apart mm-hmm. and rebuild them. Yes, <laughs> and. She, uh, and how old would know, she have
0: been at this time, a teenager? Oh,
1: so? she, she, Yeah, she was a young teenager, maybe 13, 14 that's, years that's, old. That's, she was the only kid in school who actually knew anything about computers. Uh, at the time in school, they were just getting one into the, to the library. It's a fairly big school district, but, mm-hmm. you know, the libraries in the different schools had one computer, mm-hmm. and if it would break down, nobody knew anything about computers, and they would call Susie to come and see if she could fix it, which mm-hmm. she usually could.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: um, you know, she really, uh, she had people around her all the time just fascinated by the fact that she typed so fast, and she could, uh, you know, bring up all sorts of information on the computer.
0: Where did you, where do you think that she got this from?
1: I... I, I, I am, I no. have absolutely no idea. <laughs> no idea. It just it just seemed to come and, and like I said, she was you know, she was into writing poetry so she was using a, a typewriter and you know, and then of course when a computer came uh, around she could, you know, type all that information out on the um on the computer mm-hmm. and, you know, save all her poetry that way.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: she really you know, she really uh had a lot going for her, uh when she was in high school she was on the honor society mm-hmm. you know she she was a very bright girl and um yeah.
0: you know you know it's what you, you know it's it's uh interesting to me that she she seems like she has this what would be a, a, i don't know if the word or what is a dichotomy of on one hand being very technical but on yeah. the other hand being very uh well i would maybe if i could say this artsy fartsy in poetry cuz i i could say that because i'm artsy fartsy but Really, having a passion for the arts, but having a passion for computers as well, which is a really unique combination,
1: yes
2: yeah yeah
1: that, okay. that's the, basically uh what she was, and uh
2: mm-hmm. and
1: we could never understand, even as a real young child, some of the poetry that she would come up with that was you know just so far beyond her you know years, I mm. mean you know comparing things like mm-hmm. uh uh, you know, r- when it rained one day, and she wrote a poem about rain and how the rain sounded like thundering hoofs of a, a horse, mm-hmm. you know, coming down the driveway. Right. You know, just just really, you know, far out uh, ideas of how she put this all together. We just don't know where it came from. Uh, one interesting thing was uh, one day she was taking a shower, mm-hmm. and uh, she jumped out of the shower. She hit soap in her hair towel wrapped around her and she ran down the hall and they said where are you going and she said she just got the idea for a poem and she had to write it down before she forgot it so you know even doing mm-hmm. that would be you know poems were just coming into her head all the time mm-hmm. um, she even she even wrote poems about the places that she would write a poem uh, one time writing a poem on a on the back of a, I think she had some bunion pads or something, and it was the only paper she had.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So she wrote a poem on the back of that. You know, just things like that that she could, you know, really mm. came to her. She had to write it down. Backs of napkins. I mean, mm. it was just, you know, it was constantly coming into her. And uh, after she disappeared, my husband and I went through her her books, which were tons of paper, and I couldn't believe all the poems that she wrote. I just can't, I could not believe it. She,
0: she was a young woman who was very in touch with her feelings and could express them, you know, not just oh, in, yeah. not just speaking, but writing them down, which is a particularly unique talent.
1: Yes, yeah, that's where she was coming from, and uh, we don't know where she got it from, but it just seemed to to happen. And...
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, having a wide, diverse array of interests like that is usually uh, a sign of uh, good parenting, too. You, you should oh. know, so you should be uh, commended for that. But I'm sure you're happy, though, that she went, chose to go into computers for school instead of poetry, right?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I <laughs> right? always, I always wondered, you know, uh, if a poet could make it in this world. And mm-hmm. I know uh, at, at, at a t- uh, there was a time when the school would publish, you know, art type things. That children had done, um, or yeah, actually, I calling them children, but mm. high school students yeah. would do art type work. And um, in order to, some of the stuff that she wrote, she said in order to get it published in this booklet, which was a once a year booklet, was kind of on the dark side. Mm. For some reason, that's what kids like to read.
2: Yeah. So
1: you know, some of her poetry at that point was very dark sounding
2: mm-hmm. and
1: when I spoke to people who worked at the school they said they would get booklets from all the different schools and, and most of the booklets were very dark you know just mm. that's what kids were like teenagers yeah
0: teenagers right. uh, so she goes to school but she she ends up going to one school but and what was that school again she then she transferred
1: oh she went to um SUNY Oneonta which is uh, about 100 miles from where we live, Mm -hmm. um, kind of, uh, you know, down in uh, kind of mid-New York. Um, And when she went there, she she took a computer science class. And uh, by the end of the year, she said that it was, you know, really she could teach the the teachers. They didn't have the knowledge that she had at that point about computers. So she decided that she would transfer to a bigger school, and that's when she came up to SUNY Albany, which, you know, well, maybe 35, 40 miles from here. So she moved a little closer. I I was kind of against it. I really didn't want her to move closer. But the the classes that she could take at that Mm -hmm. school were, you know, a little more challenging. I think that's what she was looking for, just something that...
0: That's interesting. You didn't want her to move back closer to where you lived? That's that's well, interesting. I, I, I,
1: I really felt like in, in, I had two other children who, you know, both of them went away, you know, to, to school, one five hours away, one mm-hmm. two and a half hours, almost three hours away. I just really felt like their, you know, their um, ability to grow a little bit mm-hmm. was to be able to be further away from home. With her being so close to home, it was – not that I didn't want her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not the point. Yeah. But with her being so close to home, I just felt like she wasn't going to experience the, um, you know, learning how to live out on out the world on your own a little bit,
2: yeah.
1: a little bit better.
0: Yeah. See, my mom to this day is still the opposite. If I could have gone to college in my bedroom at home in <laughs> 1989, she would have – so yeah. once again, so I, I so that was that's why I had to ask you about that. Um, how did she feel? I, I, you know, she'd just be a few years younger than me. I was born in nineteen seventy. She would be a few years. Like what year was she born again? 70? 78.
1: 78. So she
0: okay. So she was born the same year as my nephew. Okay. So I know even at the time, even the you know early nineties, mid nineties, computers for women was was still kind of in its infancy. How did she feel about, you know, having these classes and having an interest with, with in something that was so male-dominated?
1: Uh, I don't know. I think she just felt very good about knowing what she knew, and um, mm-hmm. she was very helpful to anybody who asked her if, if uh, they could, you know, um, if if she could help them, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with their with their problems, and and many times, you know, after a class, somebody would come up to her and say, you know, geez, I'm having trouble with a certain thing, and you help me out. So I think she felt good about that. I really, um, I know she did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that she was able to, uh, you know, help other people, who, you know, with her yeah. knowledge.
0: Yeah, because. You know the way I remembered. I think that women going into engineering and computers and math is is much more common now. But I think at the time, it, a lot of women stayed away from this stuff. They might have had the interest, but they didn't because it was such a ma- male domin you know male dominated industry. So I think that also that once again says something that you know very unique about her. How did she do at Albany? You know, switching. You know. To a tougher school. Um, How is she doing?
1: I don't think she. You know, the thing is, I think with with uh, being in a being in college, when you go to a, a college, you make friends. You know, in your uh, freshman mm-hmm. year, and you kind of stay with those friends throughout the whole schooling. When she switched, she had a little more trouble, you know, making uh, close acquaintances because you mm-hmm. don't have that orientation that mm. you would have when you start out as a freshman. Mm.
2: Um,
1: you know, she was already a sophomore, so uh, she didn't really have a lot of close friends. She had friends, but, you know, nobody she could say, you know, this is my closest friend. I met her, you know, last year. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: So I think she had a little more trouble when she came up. I, I'm wondering if, if she, you know, made a mistake, um, you know, coming mm. closer. Of course, Mm. we know it wasn't a baby. But, um, you know, uh, just the fact that she, um, you know, uh, Mm. needed some.
0: I mean, she was, uh, let's just put it this way. She was getting passing grades and all the.
1: Oh, yeah, she was. Yeah, no, she didn't have that problem. Mm -hmm. The problem was, you know, um, uh, basically, uh, you know, the fact that it was harder for her to to fit into groups
0: the social life the socializing social yeah. socializing that that goes along with college okay yeah sure well that, I guess that brings us to um, the the man that she eventually did meet and through a computer club you know, explain to the listeners how that happened with rich well, meeting she, Richard she Richard Con
1: yeah she actually met him uh, before she went to college. He, uh, she was okay. she was about eleventh grade and um, heard about this computer uh, computer uh, group that would meet once a week at a local restaurant and hmm. uh, convinced my husband to take her to this place and uh, so my husband would take her down there, um, you know, once a week to meet with these people and hmm. uh, she, some of them were older. Um, that was. Something that bothered me a lot was, mm. you know, and there were quite a few, you know, male
0: right people,
1: um, you know, yeah. more and so uh, actually, just recently, uh, became acquainted with somebody I didn't, but I found out about somebody who, who was the person who actually introduced Suzanne to her. Her uh, boyfriend, mm-hmm. the one she finally wound up with, yeah. and the reason that he did was because Susie was interested in learning um, learning how to uh, do some uh, uh, my not here, um, learning how to do computer uh, programming.
0: Okay, in it like a particular and, computer language or something like
1: that. Yes, mm-hmm. and she did not know how to do that, and she had heard that this guy um who eventually became her boyfriend mm-hmm. was a, an expert at programming. and so he was he introduced her to, to uh, this guy's name is Rich,
2: mm-hmm. introduced
1: him to Rich and um, that's how they got acquainted was because he taught Susie some computer programming. And um, she she used uh, um, we all use Microsoft Word. Everybody uses
2: Microsoft mm-hmm.
1: Word. but she and Rich, Got into um, using Linux, right. which is yeah a lot a lot more difficult a program. So right. that's how they they, uh, you know really got to know each other. And you know he he thought wow you know <laughs> he, he was pretty uh, pretty in tune with computers. And to meet up with a, a girl that you know knew so much about computers was
0: kind of, right. wow. So know? that was the level on which they identified with each other. That's where they really bonded. I guess you could say. Was was yeah. with the computers? How long was it? Now he was how many years older than she was?
1: Uh, about a year and a half. Now. Okay, yeah, he so was, uh, one grade ahead of her. He when she was in eleventh, he was in twelfth. So.
0: And he was and he was organizing this at this restaurant at, the, at that early age. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because okay. Um,
1: he he was another guy who was building computers and you know tearing them apart and you know making bigger and better computers at the time when they weren't. I mean, our cell phones now have more more memory than those computers did. But yes. you know, that many years ago 18, 19, 20 years ago,
2: mm-hmm.
1: we're we're talking about you know uh, top of the line computers that they were putting together.
0: So, how much longer after that did they become a couple? Was it while she when she went to college when she went to Albany? Because he ended up now, going to the same school. Is
1: yeah. No, he actually never did go to the same school as oh, he did. Okay. Um yeah, he um he went to a uh, Catholic boys' school in the area and uh she of course went to a local high school up here in Balsam Spa, where we're from. Mm-hmm. But um he um when he went off to college he went to RPI, which Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute
2: mm-hmm. and
1: Susie was still in high school. Um and then the following year, she went to uh, Oniana, which, like I said, is about 100 miles from
2: right. here. Right.
1: So, um, so they never went to the same schools together. They just got to know each other, I think, through that, you know, that meeting, those meetings in the restaurants. And then once, you know, they had those meetings, that's how they. Uh, that's
0: know, how they started together. dating.
1: That's how they started dating
0: and at the at the time that Suzanne disappeared, how long had they been a couple and I know there's some we'll get into the particulars of that, but how long had they been been a couple?
1: I think they'd been together uh, about two and a half years, maybe because okay. she started dating him sometime um as a junior in high school, mm-hmm. and then she disappeared as a freshman in uh, or a sophomore in college, so
2: okay.
1: about. You know uh, two and a half
0: years or so, okay. We're going to come back to her boyfriend in a moment, but before you came on the air, I went through the facts of her disappearance and what she did that day, and some of the times and, and things like that. Um, I just want to clear up a couple things because here we are in 2016, and there, I just want to get straight a couple facts. First of all, I'm sure you know, if people are familiar with their daughter's case, they've heard about the man in the baseball hat that appears at that convenience store around the time that her ATM card was used the next day. What can you tell That guy has been exonerated, hasn't he?
1: Yes, he has. Uh, And it took a long time before the police actually located him. But they finally did and um, pretty much decided. I mean, that's what they told me is that, Mm. you know, anything that they found out from him – you know, put, didn't put him in that place or didn't put him taking taking Suzanne.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, that's really all I can tell you about that. Right. I, I don't know any more than what the police told me.
0: Right. Well, I, uh, yeah. And I just want my listeners to get it straight from your mouth because, like I said, there, <clears throat> there are still sites out there that maybe haven't been updated in a while or they don't yeah. know some of the news that, you know, that can kind of put people – off in, in maybe the wrong direction and of course if somebody if the police say that somebody's not being looked at anymore then we want to make sure that we put that out there uh, the other point is about her her name tag from her job uh, that she was at that night it wasn't seen a, near that bus stop that where she got off for about 2 months later like it was she disappeared in March
1: uh, I was yeah it was it was uh, like early i would say late April early May
0: okay that and they found that. Okay and was that name tag where it was found would that have been on the way from the bus to her to her um, dormitory or would it have been in the opposite
1: direction no, it was found um, pretty much right where the the bus left off the, the uh, passengers that night. Um, it it actually uh, that was a very mild winter. We did mm-hmm. not have very much snow that winter, and any time it rain, any time we had any precipitation, it was always um, kind of freezing rain.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: right after, and there was no snow on the ground when Susie disappeared. It was
2: mm.
1: very clear, just you know. Um, whatever. But that week, after she disappeared, there was a small snowstorm. And I would say maybe four or five inches, not much. Um, And when the college um, plowed that parking lot, Mm -hmm. uh, it, it had salt and sand or whatever on the parking lot. And they pushed that up over the curb, there was like a curb where the you know where yeah. the bus left the passengers off yes, and when they pushed the uh, the salt and sand or whatever up to the top, it went up over the top of the curb, and it was there that that badge was found now, from what i uh I gathered from the police, they mm-hmm. said that. Right after she disappeared, of course, they didn't go out to look for about three or four days. So, but they said right after she disappeared, um, they walked that parking lot pretty much shoulder to shoulder and did not find anything. All hmm. right, that that's this is where the confusion comes. Yeah. In. They found they found nothing. Now, I'm saying that where this badge was found mm-hmm. was up on top of this pile of sand and. Uh, you know, fault uh, or whatever it was. Yeah. And it wasn't until, like I said, almost, you know, a month and a half to two months mm-hmm. after she disappeared where they found it. And um, could could somebody have come by and dropped it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, this, the other thing about this was this particular badge was one, according to the place where she worked, they were not using anymore. They were using a hang tag, where you you know put it around your neck on a, right. a
2: you know lariat type yes. thing, mm-hmm.
1: and they had the badge on that. Um, this one was a pin badge, and um, from what what you know what we found, the police showed us the back of the badge. Um, the pin was very rusty. Well, you know I, I mm-hmm. think you could put something out you know, in a day and have it rust
0: pretty quickly. Especially cheap metal like that,
2: sure. Yeah, cheap
1: metal, you know. So they were saying, well, it was here for a long while. Well, we we can't decide that it was. It was cracked. Hmm. I would say that, you know, maybe a car drove over it or something, so it was cracked. But other than that, there wasn't really much else we could find out about that badge other than it was found by two students. Uh, who were walking through the parking lot and they found it. And they first picked it up, thought it was a credit card because mm. the size of the credit card. Right. Yeah. And threw it down. And then uh, the one girl picked it up and said, Oh, there's a girl that's missing. Let's look at this. And they looked at it and that was her name. So, wow. you know. Uh,
0: was it uh, Suzanne's habit to, like, if she left work, would she have just left? the name tag on like, to go home and...
1: Yeah, and some people, yeah. Yeah, people I mean, do what, that. You, what I do, do you... do you all the time.
0: Okay, would you say <laughs> that that care. was her habit to do that probably too? Because some people, yeah. you know, they're going to take I it off. Say, well, I don't want somebody to know that I work at this store, or, you know, or... Well, something.
1: you know, the unusual thing about this, and, you know, there's, people always say there's always some something there we're missing here yeah. along the way, but yeah. um, the unusual thing is the fact that she never liked to wear the clothes that she had to wear to work, um... At, you know, out, out of work. So mm. she would bring a bag of clothes, the you know, and it was like, a, a I don't know, tan-colored pants and a certain colored shirt. I can't remember what it was, but it was the logo of the company that she worked for. So she would bring them with her, change at work, then once she got done with work, she would mm. change the clothes back and put them back in a bag and carry them home. Or carrying back mm. to the dorm so mm-hmm. if she would do that taking the badge off too right so that's that's always been a question high on my list yeah <laughs> but I never got any good answers to that
0: uh, do you have an knowledge if she changed clothes that night after
1: she oh yeah she did oh, yeah. She absolutely they, did she, okay she absolutely did uh, the uh, the man that she worked for you know the her mm. boss at mm. the time said that Susie would come in a little bit early uh to work so she could she could um you know get into her work clothes and always started a little bit early which meant that she could leave five minutes before the bus would come Mm and she'd leave five or ten minutes, you know, before the bus would come and change back into her her uh you know outdoor clothes basically jeans or whatever the kids were wearing at the time mm-hmm. and um you know she would take those clothes off she didn't want to wear those clothes out i don't know why but <laughs> that was her habit you
0: know well maybe if a, a fashion you know statement of some type <laughs> you know self-conscious about her fashion or something like that i i i, I, I think i've known people who i've i think i've had one or two jobs like that you know in my life where it maybe has like the name of a store or something on there and you know, you know like
1: McDonald's or something. Right. You don't want to wear your McDonald's uniform out, Out, you know, advertising the uniform.
0: Yeah, may, um, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but yeah. just going back to the name tag, so what, it's possible that that night the name tag falls out. It sits there somewhere around the bus. She disappears. It sits there for a couple days. Nobody notices it. And then the storm comes. The snow gets pushed away. The name tag gets caught up in the snow, and then these months later, or eight weeks later, the snow melts, and then the name tag appears. It shows up. That's possible.
1: That's possible. Okay.
0: Great. I just wanted to get that on the record. Okay, great. Um, Let's move on once again, uh, I guess, back to the boyfriend. The next day, he calls you and tells you that Suzanne has disappeared.
1: Yeah. He says um – How did he word it? He worded it so that it didn't sound like, you know, geez, you know, Susie disappeared. What are we going to do about it? It wasn't like that. It says, Mm. you know, did you know Susie didn't come home last night or something like that? And it was like a shock to me because I was getting ready. My husband was uh, reading the newspaper. I was getting ready so that we could go to meet my son was going to take me out for my birthday, which was the day before Susie disappeared. Mm -hmm. And um, so he called, you know, my son said, you know, we'll go out for lunch. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was getting ready. The phone rings and and he says, you know, did you know Susie didn't come back last night? It was like, what are you talking about? You know, (laughs) I was like a little bit in shock because, uh, you know, why didn't you call me last night? (laughs) And why are you saying that and he so i I gave the phone to my husband, and my husband got the information from him saying that you know Susie didn't come back. he had tried to get into her computer- which he did. he got into her computer mm-hmm. and um you know looked at different uh, emails or whatever right we're, gonna, we're yeah, we'll get no into reason. that
0: we'll get into that too, but for well yeah we'll get into that, but he calls okay. and says and and then yeah. He, he, you hang up the phone and you go all My
1: husband went right down to Albany. Yeah, okay. I stayed here um, because I thought, you know, if if there were any phone calls, somebody would call me and I'd be here. Um, that was before, you know, I mean, cell phones were just coming
2: yeah, in, so yeah. we didn't have
1: the cell phone. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I uh, here and Doug went to Albany to uh, you know, go and talk with the police because the police weren't taken any report from just a boyfriend, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they were they were trying to convince us that, uh, uh, well, maybe she just came home and she went and stayed in somebody else's room, fell asleep, and, you know, she'll mm-hmm. show up again, you know, basically. Yeah. They poo-pooing the whole thing.
0: So, Do you, um, let me ask you this, if you know. Uh, did Suzanne and, and Rich have... You know, I'll admit I'm single at 46, but I know most people who are in relationships or married they have kind of like a schedule. They call people at certain times of the day, maybe after they get off of work or or something like that. Yes, would it have been Suzanne's inner habit maybe to call him when she got back to her dorm or something like yes, that? Yes,
1: that that was the habit, and okay. that was basically the reason why he, you know. Um, she did not contact us right away. When she got back, she usually got back to her dorm about quarter to ten. She mm-hmm. left work at 9.30 or nine nine 9.25 so that she could run to change her clothes and then catch the bus uh, back to the campus. Mm-hmm. And the campus made no stops between the mall she worked at and where she got off at of Visitor's Parking Lot. And it was about a ten-minute ride. And uh, so she made, you know, when she would get back to her um, to her dorm, which would have been about quarter to ten, she would make a phone call to him or she would email him to let him know that she Mm -hmm. was back. And uh, she didn't do it that night. And he started, according to her roommates or you know her their quad mates,
2: because Mm -hmm.
1: this is like a a four a four room quad okay. that she lived in, and according to them, they hadn't heard her come in. Um, she normally would come in, and she had a lot of keys on a key fob, and it would hit the door, and they could hear the noise when she walked in,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: they never heard that. So, But all they heard all night long was the phone ringing. The phone kept ringing and ringing because okay. he was trying to call.
0: So there is a record of at least somebody trying to call her on her phone that night yes. trying to reach her figure out where she was we don't know necessarily if it was him or not but somebody was looking for her
1: somebody was looking for her okay yeah yeah that was
0: okay so the next day don't quite know about the atm situation yet but you start this search and does the does um he take part in it
1: he, I don't know what he actually, I think he might have tried, you know, getting a hold of the police. I don't think he ever really went to the campus. Mm-hmm. My husband went to the campus, um, and he called around 9.30 in the morning, which, you know, we're, we're saying 12 hours after she was not heard from. Mm. So we've got 12 hours gone already, and... So Doug goes down to the campus, and it it takes him, you know, got himself right down there. And he was down there by um, maybe 11 o'clock in the morning. And he went right to the police and, you know, talked to them. In the meantime, I thought, what do I do while I'm sitting here? Um, And I thought about her credit cards. And I thought maybe because all her credit card statements would come to us. Mm -hmm. And she had maybe two credit cards. She didn't have a lot. But they would come here, her bank, you know, book, I knew what she had in her bank account because all the statements would come here. And um, so I started to call. Uh, I called because I knew she had an ATM account. So I called it. I think by the time I figured that all out, it was around, um, you know, 2.30 or about maybe, yeah, quarter after three, I'd say, that I got a hold of an atm agent for her atm card. And I was talking to this woman on the telephone. She was in Seattle, Washington. And I'm looking at the clock and about 10 minutes before,
2: mm-hmm. she
1: says to me, "I think that card just got used." That had that said, had to been
0: a that had to been a crazy moment for you. That had to been was. a really surreal uh,
2: it moment. Was. Yeah.
1: And I'm saying, "Where did it get used?" And she said, "I can't tell you that because We, you know, this particular company was Cirrus, Mm -hmm. and Cirrus gets their receipts the next day. At that time, I don't know what they do now, but at that time, you know, all the receipts for the day before would come into the the company the next day. And she said, I can tell you tomorrow morning, but I can't tell you right now. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, can you tell me anything about it? And she said um, the PIN number was a direct PIN number. Direct hit on the pin number.
0: So and, and what that means is that somebody used the card and somebody got the pin right the first time.
1: Right the first time.
0: Nobody like tried to mess around, hit one, two, three, no. four, one, two, three, five. It was no. whatever it was the first time, boom.
1: The first time it was the right pin number. Okay. So, um, I was, you know, like what else can you tell me? She says like, I can't tell you anything else. So first First thing the next morning, this woman, like I said, Seattle, Washington, she called me up and she told me that um, the receipts were turned in and uh, $25 was taken out of the uh, account.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was it, which was kind of the usual thing that Susan, $20, I'm Tw- sorry, $20, $20 okay. was, was the usual thing that she had taken out. And she had taken out the day before, the day she disappeared at around, I would say, 4 o'clock or, or 3.30 or 4 o'clock, uh, from a bank across from the campus, she had taken 20 out. And then she got to the, um, she got to the uh, mall where she worked and took 20 more out at the mm-hmm. mall. So, you know, maybe to buy supper, I don't know.
0: Now, I'm going to ask you this because, once again, this is going to become, uh, for the listeners, this is going to become relevant later are you sure she used the card both those times? Definitely.
1: Yes. I okay. believe that, okay. yes, because at the time, uh, there was a, a camera at the bank where she took the first 20 out. And when she got to the mall, I believe there was a camera in the mall at their ATM machine where she took the second 20 okay. out. Okay. Okay, so they saw her there and both okay. times. Okay. So was her. But... When they got to the the uh, place where the the card was used
0: on March third,
1: on March the third, well, I was on the telephone with the ATM Mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. Um, The the surveillance camera was not over the ATM machine. Right. It was it was over the counter, where the cash register was for the store that uh, the convenience store that you. Uh, that, you know, was used.
0: So the camera is, uh, once again, for the listeners, what that means is that the camera was pointed at the registers probably because the owner of the store might've wanted to make sure somebody wasn't ripping them off in contrast to like today, almost 20 years later, where it seems like every convenience store has like 10 cameras all over the
1: place. Yeah, exactly. There was only the one camera over the cash register in that convenience
0: store. And where was the ATM in that, in that store?
1: Just inside the doorway, so when somebody would come in, they could go right to the ATM machine, do their business, uh, get money out, maybe go to the mm. counter and buy what they wanted to buy, and have the cash on hand. Right. That particular machine gave cash. Okay. Some some machines give scripts, but that one I was told gave cash.
0: Right. And this, by the way, is this is also how the guy with the Nike hat got involved because. He was in the store right around the time that that ATM spit out the money.
1: Exactly. Okay, so that's
0: how that all ties itself up together.
1: And and the reason that you saw the Nike hat was because the camera was overhead, so it was kind of a a bird's-eye view. So all you got was the the hat with the brim and maybe a little part of this guy's nose, really no facial, you know, um... Right. familiarity you couldn't get you know there was no face there i mean it was basically but the
0: but the police finally found him
1: somehow finally located him he he had a um what do have a, a jacket he had a, yeah. it was a um, a winter jacket that was a, a particular brand and that was another reason that he was identified with because of the jacket the hat and it. it was months later when they finally identified him it right. Wasn't like overnight. They, yeah, and that's. overnight. You know, it took a long time to find them, but they
0: did find them. They did find. That's why it's weird. 18 years Car. later, that that yeah, okay, that's the name of the the make of the jacket, the company, right? Yeah, right. the
1: company of the jacket.
0: Yeah. Right, and that's. But going back, you said it took them a while, but still, you'd think 18 years later that, you know, some of these people would would clean their you know their information up. How did her boyfriend find out that she was missing? He called you, but how did he find out?
1: He 'cause because she didn't call him, so he tried calling her. Okay. And he kept calling her and calling her, claiming that that's what he did.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, you know, I think my husband asked him, "Well, why didn't you go down there?" And he he said he didn't really have an explanation, but when the police talked to him, his explanation was he was he uh, or his his uh, alibi was he was playing a game on the computer with one of his friends. And his friend... um, When she disappeared. When she disappeared, yeah. And this friend identified him by the fact that he said, I knew all his moves. In other words, the moves on this particular Mm
0: -hmm, game. game. How far... And we maybe need to clear this up too. How far did her boyfriend live from the Albany campus? He didn't go to school there, but he lived close.
1: Yes, he did. He lived maybe... um, I would say, if you got on the on the north way, probably about 10 to 12 minutes okay. away. Yep, not right. very far.
0: Okay, getting back to the question of how he, he found out. So he just took for granted that because she didn't pick up the phone, not even the next day, that he never she never came back. Or did finally somebody pick up the phone in that dorm? Or did he drive down there and find one of her roommates or something? And they said, no, Suzanne never came home last night.
1: Now he just decided that she was missing that that was what his okay. that's right. you know that, that, just talking to you about this really brings a lot of this back. you know I mean these are questions that mm-hmm. need to be asked from the police again. You know we mm-hmm. need to go over this and over this
0: yeah. there's
1: a there's a clue somewhere.
0: Well, I, I I ask the questions because either I don't know them or haven't read them, and I you know I don't that want this. I don't want though. you to. I don't. I'm, this is not a point of trying to relive this over again no. for you. You know that's that's not why I do this. But no, I, I'm just asking questions as you're answering them. You know, I yeah. just some just the thing that pops into my head. Once again, you can answer it. Great. If you don't know, that's fine too. You know that that's yeah. fine too. Um. Now you did a show. Now we should say any, something before we continue. Nobody has, there is no suspect in this crime. Nobody's been, like, there's a woman that I've interviewed uh, that's going to be on a future show, and she always likes to say nobody's been included, nobody's been excluded in the disappearance of Suzanne Lau. Okay, that is right. a fact. All right, that's a fact. Right. We have to established that right now for the listeners. However, you did a show, uh, you did a show called Disappeared back in 2011 2012 where you were very uh let's put it this way there was a strong feeling there that you thought that her boyfriend had something to do with it yeah. okay now t- can you talk about that
1: yeah i can talk about it um you know for a long time the police pretty much said don't say anything you mm-hmm. know well you know 18 years have gone by and i just got to the point where i just couldn't hold back anymore but you know just the fact that Here was a guy who claimed to be her boyfriend, lived about 10 to 12 minutes away from the campus, realized Mm -hmm. that she didn't come home that night, and didn't drive down to find out where she was. Mm -hmm. Most people would say, yes, um, you know, if it was my boyfriend or girlfriend, I'd want to know where they were, you know. (laughs) I want to go check, you know. Most boys, most guys would do that.
0: Now, do you think that he didn't, now, this is once again another point that was you know that we've talked about you know we've originally talked could it be the reason he didn't go down there is because maybe they weren't a couple anymore
1: well i was wondering that also but um you know from the fact that he did call the next day to tell us you know that mm-hmm. she didn't come back to our room so they could have maybe he still thought they were a couple i thought around valentine's day that she gave him the dear john letter but we never knew for sure you know, and that was only mm. two weeks before she disappeared. And I know that every time she tried to break up with him, he would just get very emotional and throw a real fit about it. So, And she was the kind of a person who couldn't take that kind of emotion, you know, that mm. she always felt sorry for, you know, the underdog, basically. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if he had her pretty much, you know, under his thumb. Do
0: you think that that is something that she would have explicitly told you? Hey, Ma. You know that I broke up with Rich last week. Do you, do you think I that was? There
1: were, I knew there were times when she uh, she tried. Um, you know, where she, and she didn't actually tell him in person. Mm. She would write a long letter and then hand him the letter, and he would get home, open the letter, and about ten minutes later, you'd hear the telephone ring and you'd hear her on the phone. You know, arguing mm. with him, and eventually, you know they would get back together
0: again. So this was a, a relationship that had its ups and downs.
1: It sure did. Yep. It okay. Did.
0: Okay. So once again, we just have to establish that he, is, he has been interviewed by the police, maybe not recently, no. but at the time, maybe a little, a few months after, wherever, whenever, he's been interviewed. He has seemingly a decent alibi with yeah. the, the video. Of course, nobody saw him. No. But he's playing video games. This friend, whoever he is, is vouching for him. That alibi has never been broken. No. Okay. However, given that he is a computer expert, just like Suzanne was, maybe there's the possibility that he could have maybe programmed the computer to do something, because there are, you know, that... it's
1: always been my contention is that he programmed that computer to play that game. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: was not in, uh, not where he said he was, and you know, um, right after he a, after Susie disappeared, and the police would want to talk to him and his family, they finally got a lawyer, um, right. very high-priced lawyer, and that was it. Police can't unless you have you know probable cause, you cannot mm-hmm. bother the person anymore. So basically, the victim has less rights than the perpetrator. Yeah, that sent up red flags for
2: me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Um, let's move on to let's move on to to something else, and it has to do with and this this is takes us to the E T M question again. That Rich and Suzanne had a favorite movie movie called Hackers. All right, right. and you told me about that the first time we talked. I've watched the movie. All right, I, I I watched it from beginning. To end, and I can tell you, I even took a few notes during it, the, you know, just to kind of run through my head after I was done watching it. You know, it's kind of it was kind of interesting seeing Angelina Jolie 21 years ago, with the, you know she had this very boyish haircut, and right. it was very 90s, you know. And being 25 at the time that the movie came out, it certainly brought back some memories. But there's a specific part in that movie that is relevant to this case. And it's right. almost like a weird coincidence, almost, yeah. if you believe in that sort of thing. In the movie, in the first quarter of the movie, one of the, it's, the movie of Hackers is about these people, as you can imagine, computer, young computer kids in high school, um, kind of like, uh, I guess from my generation, it would have been like Ferris Bueller's day off, going in and switching his grades. Well, these guys did a lot more. We're doing a lot more than that in this movie. Right. And the one guy was bragging about what getting into an ATM machine, hacking it, and causing it to spit out money somewhere. All right? And then here we have just three years later, that movie came out in 95. In 98, you have Suzanne disappear, and the next day that ATM in that store spits out that $20 bill, and seemingly nobody saw anybody come in and use that machine. Now, granted, it wasn't caught on camera, but nobody remembers anybody using the machine.
1: Well, the police actually, um, when, they, when they realized the ATM machine might be, you know, some factor, they were able to get um, about a half an hour before and a half an hour after that time frame that um, for um, mm-hmm. three, uh, three fifty, you know, ten minutes before, um, of all the people who used the machine, and they were able to speak with everybody, and that's how this Nike guy, the one mm-hmm. they refer to as the Nike guy, right. um, was the only one that they could not identify right away. He was the only one, and that's why he became a suspect. And basically, mm-hmm. he became a suspect because the the boyfriend's family decided that he should be the suspect mm-hmm. and they were the ones who put up all the posters with his picture
0: uh, the, uh, really the boyfriend boyfriends it. rich the boyfriend's family put those posters up
1: yeah and they also bought a billboard with uh, Susie on one side of the billboard and the Nike man on the other side you can you identify this man? So that would throw any suspicions away from anybody else for a long time, and it did. That billboard was up for six months.
0: Now, it, sh- it should also be noted, nobody saw Suzanne go in and use that machine that no. day. No. No.
1: And, it, and this was, the other thing about that was it was about uh, two and a half miles from the campus. Mm -hmm. Susie wasn't much of a walker, and I don't think she would have walked down there. She did not drive. She didn't have a driver's license or a car. Mm -hmm. And uh, in order to take a bus, it would have been out of her way to get a bus to that area. So I don't think Susie was there. I know she was. Did
0: you not also tell me the first time we talked that a branch of her bank is very close to there?
1: Right across the street.
0: So if she's going to go so. use the, if it was her that day, and maybe, yeah. maybe she had some sort of, you know, um, you know, let's just, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, I don't know what, you know, the medical term, but kind of just an amnesia or something like that. If she needed to use the ATM, and could re- look at this card and say, well, I have this ATM," and maybe she knows the number. She would have gone to the bank, not to the. She
1: would have gone across the street. Yeah, Ruby right. was smart enough to right. Right. spend any extra money if she didn't. And she had talked to me actually on my birthday, which was March the 1st. Mm -hmm. Um, And she said, she said how she was low on money. Um, And if, you know, I said, well, do you want me to send you some? Because I could have put some money in her bank account, because I had access to her bank account. And she said, no, she could wait till Thursday of that week, because that was the day she was going to get paid. And she still had enough, you know, cash left in the ATM that she could take cash anytime she needed it. So, and also the, the other thing was um, after she disappeared, there was a, a little jar full of money um, on her desk full of change. So it was like, you know, not a lot, maybe 8 or $9 in change mm-hmm. that she used for the, you know, the washing machine and probably for... Uh, you know candy machine or whatever so you know it wasn't like she was completely broke
2: yeah
1: so you know why would she go all the way down to this convenience store you know about two and a half miles from her campus when she had stores all around and you know um, across the street from the campus there was an atm um, machine in a bank that was her bank so you know i don't think that was her that did that
0: Uh, I'll ask you this. Does the boyfriend have an alibi for where he was when the ATM was used? We know he has an alibi for the the night before. He
1: claimed he was out looking for her. But we don't know.
0: Okay. All right. right. Uh, Let's move on uh, to something else. And once again, we're going to have to say for the record that um, nobody has been included or excluded from this investigation. Okay, that's why it's still unsolved um, 18 years later. Yeah. We haven't talked about, let's just, I know we, we had a wide-ranging interview the first time we talked, but I want to just keep it to this. The, the boyfriend's father assisted in the search for Suzanne. Okay? But, what happened?
1: I, I don't really, I don't, I don't remember saying that his, he did.
0: Well, well I guess what, I'm trying to put this lightly. He started calling in, having sightings of Suzanne. Dina. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. He he actually. Can we can was, we
0: talk about can we talk about that? Do you feel comfortable? Sure. Talking? Okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He he actually um, he would tell the police, you know, how he was. I think at one time he was like an auxiliary policeman, whatever that means, mm-hmm. you know, in this little town or whatever. Big deal, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I remember we were in we were waiting in a room. Um, at the campus, and one of the things that he said out loud was to his son, if you think you've, you've met the police, you know, regular police, wait till you meet the state police. You know, in other words, they're the big guys. You know, mm-hmm. they're the ones that are going to really take over. So he, he was really kind of I, almost uh, enamored with police-type people. So uh, several weeks after Susie disappeared, he called the state police to say he was He said, I know what happened to Suzanne. I was driving uh, down the road, and uh, I saw a car that looked just like my son's car. Same color, same stickers on the car. Everything was exactly the same. He said, so I pulled up alongside so I could wave, Mm -hmm. and the guy that looked at me looked just like my son, but it wasn't my son. So he figured that night this guy must have gone to the campus, Mm-hmm. this fictitious guy okay and and Susie when she got off of he knew when she got off the bus and you know called her over and she thought it was my son and she got in the car with him so that was his first story okay. another story that he he continued
0: to uh, now to, just for the record how do you know that happened? The police told you that?
1: Oh, yeah, the police told
0: And there are police yeah. records in the state of New York right now that that happened. Just, what's again, for the record, yeah. for the listeners.
1: Yep. Okay. Yep. All right, please the continue. Thing, okay, go ahead. The other thing was um, he was a truck driver himself at the time, and he drove his truck to um, uh, a small town about 25, 30 miles away from here uh, called Amsterdam. Gloversville, Amsterdam area, and he he said he would stop at this coffee shop every every day that he drives the truck there, and he said, I'd see Suzanne sitting out on a bench just outside this coffee shop, um, which <laughs> kind of threw me for a loop there, okay. because how in the heck would she get there, but anyway, um, he would see her sitting on the bench, so he told the police this, he said, I saw her at least eight times. And so the police said, look, I'm going to give you one of our telephones. The next time you see her on that bench, you call us. We'll have the policeman there in two minutes. And uh, so, you know, two weeks went by, and they actually had some undercover police following him around. And um, they saw, they saw um, he, he uh, got on the telephone, and he called, and he said, she's out there sitting on the bench right now. And the other two police are saying you talking about and the, the two cops dead. are
0: right there as well in an unmarked yeah. car seeing what the, seeing, the fathers saying yeah. and they're seeing nothing
1: nothing they saw nothing so that was you know that was another sighting you know uh, debacle I'm and going to
0: he, I'm going to guess that the calls probably stopped shortly after those sightings stopped shortly after that if the, yeah
1: but he did he had one more where there's a there's a college here in Schenectady it's called uh, Union College and he claimed he was driving it was like, I don't know May or June, very hot day and he said I saw Susie in her long winter coat and boots walking through that campus um, in in uh, Union College um, that particular day he called the police to tell him that. Is he crazy? I don't know but yeah. that was another one that you know
0: did you get to know him very well
1: while, while
0: Suzanne and Rich dated? Did you get to know him?
1: Uh, I didn't really get to know him very well. Um, Susie did. I know she, you know, they were going out and he would, they would see each other every weekend. Mm-hmm. And that was the one thing that was kind of unusual was um, the, the mother claimed that the father didn't know Susie very well. And I said, I, I got upset with her. And I said, how can you say that? She saw him every weekend that they dated, Mm -hmm. and there were times when, you know, he would come out and try to, um, you know, help his son fix the car, and the two of them were there. I said, she knew that, and then when we brought Susie down to Oniana, he showed up with some carpets and things that Susie had stored, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. in a a storage locker. Uh, The father, the mother, and the son all showed up, at Oniana, so it wasn't like he didn't know her; he knew her. Um, so I don't, I don't know.
0: I, so I get, but what you're, so he family. was, so what you're saying is that the family of her boyfriend were helpful at times. I mean, they showed up and brought some things, and
1: not that we asked them to. <laughs> no, and I okay, remember no. when they showed okay. up at Oniana, I said, right. I, I, remember, you know, we we were going to take Susie out to eat after, and I remember seeing. Um, uh, them show up, and I, I said to her right away, I said, there's no way they're going out to eat with us. You know that already, don't you? And she was, yes, I do. Okay. I said, okay, because <laughs> I, I didn't care for any of them. I, and that was before she, long before she disappeared, I didn't mm-hmm. like them.
0: But just to be clear for the record, what you're saying here is on the record, New York State police or local police stuff, These these things that he did that turned out to be false sightings. Yeah. Alright, okay. Just this is not some you know sour grapes or anything like that. We're just I do, once again, I know you're telling the truth, but I just want to hear, you know, I want to make sure my listeners understand that. Okay? Right. That that's all I'm trying to do with this. Okay. Because as long as there is a record of that happening, then you know, then that's then that's factual to me. Um what do you think happened to your daughter?
1: I, I really wish I, I could, you know, um, look at a magic ball and say, I know exactly what happened to mm-hmm. her. I really don't know. I, I know that she made it back to the campus that night. She mm-hmm. was witnessed by a, a girl who was getting on the bus um, that mm-hmm. saw her getting off the bus. Mm-hmm. And so I know she made it to the campus. From then, then on, I really don't know. My feeling is that. Her boyfriend or some member of his family came to the campus, and she knew them, and she would get in the car with any of those people, and mm-hmm. something bad happened. I just – I okay. really don't know.
0: You know, um, the, the theme of this, this uh, show, that I, um, and I, I can't thank you enough, and we're going to continue on with some other things. We're going to move on to what you've been doing since. Um, but this, this show, the theme of it is about transitional areas. About safety, you know, being aware of the, your surroundings and and things like that, because that was what really struck me uh, about uh, you know your daughter's case. And I told you from the beginning, this is still a case I think that can be solved. I, I think, you know, with you know with the right um, you know sleuthing, investigates, cold case work, or whatever else. But with each of these shows, you know, I try to teach the listeners about something and. And I do think about women out there uh, today, 2016, who you know have their heads in their phones, this there, and they set themselves up for being oh, abducted, yeah. being abducted, being attacked, being raped, you know, and becoming a missing person. I'm not—I don't think that's what happened in your daughter's case, okay? But she was in one of those transitional areas, moving from the bus to her dorm. You know those are the places those transitional areas. you'll see a lot of self defense experts uh, talk about that. So for any of you women out there listening, this is the stuff you really have to be aware of. I don't care if it's on a college campus, places that you're, uh, places that you're familiar with. If somebody has their eye on you and you're not paying attention to your surroundings, um, you know you could be you know setting yourself up. Now let's move on to to what's uh, been going on since. Talk to me about Suzanne's law.
1: Okay. Um, There are actually, I have two laws. Please, Um, tell us about them. Um, Suzanne's law, uh, the first law that we passed was in um, uh, 19, it was called the New York State College Safety Act of 1999, and it actually became law in 2000. And uh, it was an act to amend the education law uh, in relation to requiring colleges and universities to implement plans uh, for the investigation of violent fel- felonies and reports of missing students occurring on their campuses. Um, so uh, basically uh, they, they wanted uh, you know, the police to actually have some sort of a plan in place so that if a, if a kid went missing on a college campus or if there was anything violent like rape or whatever,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, they were able to, um, you know, have have a plan so that all police agencies would get involved in this. And that became a New York state law in 2000. Um, and then um, in 2008, it became a federal law, uh, mm-hmm. and it's called the Suzanne... Suzanne Miles' uh, Campus Safety Act is a federal law now, and that was uh, 2008 um, mm. when that one was passed. In 2003, we we had been working to, well, to try to get Suzanne listed with the National Center for Missing Children, but the National Center for Missing Children did not take... Um, children after the age of 18 up to the age of they would only take them up to the age of their 18th birthday so mm-hmm. once you became 18 that was it and we felt that students that you know are in college or you know graduate and up to the age of 21 they're kind of vulnerable that's a whole vulnerable group yes and we worked very very hard to get a law passed and it, in, uh, 2003, that law became Suzanne's law. Um, okay. and it requires the national, uh, it requires police to notify the National Crime Information Center when someone between the ages of 18 and 21 is reported missing as a part of the National Amber Alert Bill. And, um, so now what that law did is it actually, um, uh, raise the age to, from 18 to your 21st birthday. And now, once the police make the call, they can call the National Center for Missing Children and get those children listed with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Um, right. And uh, the, the beauty of this law is that people who went missing before this law went into place, before 2003. Can be grandfathered into the system. So um, I have a one lady I can I, uh, that I can put my finger on right away. Her son went missing. He was twenty. He was uh, at at the uh, uh, Columbia University, and he went missing in 1972. And this woman never had any any you know areas to look or search or any help or anything like that. And we got him listed with the National Center for Missing Children. So this man now is in his 60s, but he's still listed on their webpage
2: wow. as
1: a missing person because he went missing at 20. So that's the beauty of this law. So I really feel that Suzanne's Law put a lot of uh, young young people who never would have had any uh, you know help mm-hmm. or the families any help uh, – with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children,
0: what was that process like? I mean, getting—you know—you've—you've you've become an advocate now, and then getting involved with—with with the politics, getting a law passed. What was—what was that experience like for you?
1: Well, it was—it uh, was—it <laughs> was interesting because when the first law passed in New York State, and I'm thinking, "Wow, this was pretty easy." <laughs> I didn't mm-hmm. know you could pass laws that easily. And people would say to me, "How did you get this thing passed?" I don't know if it was because she was an attractive college student that went missing that, you know, the law passed right away or mm. what. But um, then we found out that we really had to, uh, you know, become a non-for-profit organization in order to really have some, you know, you know fight behind us, basically. So mm. we became an, uh, a uh, non-for-profit organization to help other people with missing family members, and once we did that, it seemed very easy to talk to representatives or, you know, mm-hmm. federal representatives to see if we could pass another law or to even, um, you know, get uh, get our campus safety law it was 2008, and at the time, um, she now is New York State Senator, um, federal senator, but. Her name was Christian Gillibrand, and she was a representative. Mm -hmm. And at that time, she hadn't passed a law yet. (laughs) So we went to see her, and guess what? She worked hard with uh, uh, Charles Schumer, uh, Mm -hmm. Senator Schumer, and the two of them passed the uh, Suzanne Lyle Campus Safety Act in 2008.
0: That had to feel like uh, quite an accomplishment for you.
1: It was a big accomplishment, and it was a big accomplishment for her, too, and yeah. the one that passed in uh, two thousand and three was another one um, that uh, we actually spoke with a, a representative, and he, you know, he said He filibustered all night, and then the next morning he called us to say we passed the law. I said, "Wow, that's great!" Mm-hmm. So yeah. it was, you know, we we said, "I can't believe this happened." People would say to us, "How do you get those things?" going I don't know it just worked it just we hit the right people at the right time
0: yeah and yeah and yeah you're not these people aren't going to drop through the cracks anymore
1: no no that's the way I look at it and anytime I get a phone call from a family member that says you know their child 18 to 21 has gone missing I immediately get them hooked up with Suzanne's Law and you know to get get a hold of the National Center for Missing Children. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to have your police agency call, but it's a federal law; they have to do it you now. And that helps them because uh, you know they get they can request posters if they need you know posters. They they can request um, uh, investigators that are retired that will look at your case. They you know they'll get a lot of help that they wouldn't have gotten. Had they, you know, um, not were not able to get into uh, the national center for missing children, if it's a child under the age of eighteen, they'll take them right away. But mm. anybody over that age of eighteen to twenty-one, it's it's a little sticky.
0: Yeah, probably because a lot of those kids, you know, they now have their independence. You know, some of them do leave the house on their own. You know, they dis right. you know they disappear on, on on their own. In fact, probably if there was some study done, I'm sure you'd find that 18 to 21A, you know, age range is probably being most likely to just say, heck, I'm out of here. And, you know, and it not technically be a disappearance. It's just somebody moving from New York to California. Exactly. And,
1: you know, and and you find families that have lost touch with these children. And, you know, and then all of a sudden they say, wow, I haven't talked to a so-and-so for a long time. You know, what's happened to them? And then find out that they're they're no longer around or they got caught up with, you know, some bad situation that, you know, they, mm-hmm. can, they can't get out of, which is what happens to a lot of those young people.
0: You know, I want to ask you a question. If you have an ins- some insight into it, I'm sure the listeners lo- would love to ha- to hear you talk about it. You've turned uh, Suzanne's disappearance into two laws. Uh, it's quite an accomplishment. We know of other uh, parents, family members. For example, Kelly Murphy project Jason who, who turned her son's disappearance into something very positive as well. On yeah. the other hand, I know because you know I've taken interest in disappearances for years now that there are many parents who and family members who kind of go the opposite direction. That you know I for example can't even begin to tell you how many websites that are supposed to feature, you know, a, a missing person or something like that. You go to the website and the link doesn't even work anymore. Where would can you do? You have any insight into that? Why some people choose to go one direction, and then it seems like other people go the other.
1: Well, there's some people that are real advocates, you know, like um, Kelly, for example, mm, right? uh, uh, Project Jason. Mm-hmm. Um, when Kelly's son disappeared, there was nothing out there in uh, Nebraska, where she was from, mm-hmm. that was helping her, and she located us on the web on a webpage and. Um, called us and said is it okay if I come out to see what you're doing Mm. and she made the trip about two or three times in a a row came every Mm. year to our missing persons day and then eventually Kelly decided to go out on her own and Mm. and become her own um, advocate.
2: Um,
1: I know many other families who have um, you know chosen to become advocates for the missing because their child went missing and you know Maybe the time uh, for us, you know, 18 years ago, there yeah. really wasn't a lot out there for us. Yeah, and that's true. And we just, you know, we, we didn't know where to turn. We didn't know what to do. Maybe we were doing all the wrong things, but we didn't know, and we had nobody to ask. And so we just decided that we would become advocates for this. My husband... Uh, was a counselor, and, you know, he Mm -hmm. kind of knew that, you know, helping people was the way to go, and Mm -hmm. um, we decided to turn our tragedy into something that would help other people so they wouldn't get so far down as we got in the beginning, and, you know, just turn it around.
0: Do you think, though, that that is the reason, you know, some people, like, it hurts so much to think about it that... Oh, you know, after after a while they just kind of want to move away from it even if it is a, a son or daughter cuz I'm telling you as a person and of course I ho- I don't have any children but I hope that never happens to me with you know my parents or you know a family member. I don't wish that upon anybody. No. But so I'm not going to say I know how you feel. I don't. I don't.
1: No, and but there's a lot of people who, and I think it's um, the same way as going to a funeral or a wake, you know, and you go mm-hmm. and you you, you say that you don't know what to say, so you say, mm-hmm. oh yeah, you know, I know how you feel. Um, but what happens with a lot of people is they they want to tell you to move on, you know, mm-hmm. stop dwelling on it, you know, get past it, you know, you're not going to be able to do. Well, it's I don't care if if that person. Eventually comes back being alive or deceased. Mm. It doesn't matter if if it happens. The family is always going to have that hole in their heart. There's a hole there, and it, it never heals up. Yeah. And I think that's the you know that's the bottom line is that sometimes some people have such a deep hole they wind up getting divorced. They can't cope with each other anymore. Yeah. They um, they have health issues, they have um, uh, drinking problems, drug problems, because that's the only way that takes the pain away for them. And, you know, Mm. I I don't like to hear that, but I do hear that a lot. I I hear that a lot. Uh, Families that just haven't been able to cope. I mean, they're, Mm. they're strong for a while, but then they just lose it after a while. They don't, you know, don't think that there's any any more hope. I mean, mm. that's uh, the reason why we, you know, started our organization. And you know? the
0: name of your organization, please.
1: It's called the Center for Hope. And hope meaning um, healing our painful emotions. I mean, you know, how do you come up with some <laughs> something mm-hmm. to add to that? But that's what it is. It's really painful. It's 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 the worst pain that you can experience, Um You know, every little thing around you reminds you of that person that's disappeared. And, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. It's it's like, and then there's no closure. Well, I don't even like that word. Closure Mm -hmm. resolves in any of these cases because when a person dies, they have a place to go to to grieve that person. There's Mm -hmm. always a gravesite or something. But with a missing person, they have nothing. Uh, Which is why we have um, Missing Persons Day once a year, and uh, New York State, in New York State, we have a monument for missing people. Um,
2: And where is it? Where is it?
1: uh, It's right in downtown Albany, right next to the New York State Museum. Okay. It's uh, 20 feet high. It has a perpetual flame at the top and uh, around the base, which is uh, 8 foot by 8 foot. Granite base. Mm-hmm. Um, it says, uh, "As a symbol of our eternal hope, may this flame light their way home." And I, I have to tell you, there have been many times when I've been down there to that monument, where there's a, a poster there, uh, a stuffed animal, flowers. People go there and sit and grieve. Yeah. They have a place to, to you know, actually feel that missing person. Um, there have been uh, candlelight vigils at that monument because people, you know, have somebody who's missing and it's the place they want to go and have a vigil just because they're hoping that that kind of publicity will bring that person back. Yeah.
0: Now, Suzanne, she had at least one other sibling, right? You have a son.
1: I have a son and a daughter.
0: And and how, how did that affect them? I mean, what...
1: It was very difficult for them, although they were grown up. Susie was our youngest child. Mm-hmm. Um, my son was twelve, um, going on thirteen when she was born. My daughter was uh, almost nine, going on mm-hmm. ten. And um, so, you know, they they were kind of like second parents to them. My my son adored her. He he'd take her to the concerts when she got to be her, you know. Right
0: age. Yeah, your daughter um, Suzanne was, was, was a Rush fan, as I
1: said. She was a Rush fan. Oh, yeah.
0: I like Rush myself. Yeah, and she yeah. had
1: about twenty. She had about twenty three CDs. Wow. Of Rush before she wow. disappeared, which I was amazed because wow. she was really into Rush.
0: She had really and good whenever, musical taste.
1: Whenever Rush came to you know our local area here um, in Saratoga SPAC, um she my son would take her he didn't want her going to concerts by herself so mm. he would take her mm-hmm. um just to tell you the age difference when he went to his first year of college she was going into first grade wow <laughs> just well, to give you
0: yeah why well, well you should know uh, i don't know if i told you that the first time we talked but i have two brothers and a sister who are quite a bit older than i am as well i actually have a sister who's my brothers and my sister are all almost 20 years older than I am. So,
1: oh, there you go. I, I know, yeah, I know, so it was the baby. Kid. Yeah. Yep, the baby, and everybody treated her, yeah. you know. Yes. Kind of uh, that way, and, you know, it was hard for them. Um, they were a little bit older, but I'll tell you, when I talk to families who have a child that's gone missing... And I'm I'm saying child because everybody is somebody's child. I don't care who it is. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if you're 55 years old and you go missing, you were somebody's child at yeah. one point. But anybody who has a child that has gone missing and has young siblings, um, I usually tell those families, please, you know, do something with them, even if it's to take them out for an ice cream cone or something. Don't let them feel neglected because you become so focused in trying to find the missing person that you forget about the siblings. And I have heard stories about siblings who have, um, I know of one who committed suicide after how uh, so many years of the family being so focused in trying to find the young sibling mm-hmm. that she couldn't cope anymore. She just couldn't handle it anymore. So it, it you know it's very difficult for them. Yeah. They don't say anything, but they do feel neglected.
2: Yeah.
0: So. Um. Well, to to wrap this up, what else? What else should be covered here? Where can pe- You know, where can people reach you, my listeners? Uh, you have a nonprofit organization. Do you take donations? What? Yes. What else? What else do you want to talk about?
1: Um, well, we can be reached at. Um, the, it's called the Center for Hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in we're in upstate New York. We're uh, twenty Prospect Street, Boston Spa, New York, one two zero two zero. I do have a web page, which is uh, Hope the Number Four the Missing Okay,
0: Hope for the Missing so, with a four is the numeral, numeral four. Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, dot org, and um i can be reached by telephone uh which is also on our web page but i'll give you the number it's uh 518 884 8761
2: okay great. and uh
1: those those telephone calls that come into the office uh we take them as they come in because i get about maybe 30 or 40 a week <laughs> missing people, so yeah. I have to take them as they come in.
0: Are, can I ask you, are you working on any legislation or anything right now? Do you think that's behind you, or you think you are going to do something even more regarding politics? I think politics? I
1: would like to, you know, uh, look at some other things. We haven't, you know, actually one of the things that we did do, um, you know, we kind of got out of the legislation area for a while, and mm-hmm. we, we produced uh, decks of playing cards with mm-hmm. um, 52 missing person cases on the cards, one on each card. Um, The cards were passed out throughout New York State uh, to the different jails. Mm -hmm. And uh, we actually, I think we had over 30,000 cards out there, 30,000 decks of cards. Um, We uh, also produced um, coasters um, that were sent out to... um, uh, the different bars and restaurants in the capital district, and we we picked out um, people who were missing through the capital district for our mm-hmm. our uh, coasters, hoping that if somebody had a drink and you know loosened up a little bit,
2: yeah. Um,
1: on the back of the card, there's a place where they can either text or um, scan, and uh, you know make a phone call to a uh, you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: place. So you know we got out of doing some legislation because we were in, involved in the in the cards and the coasters. Mm-hmm. but there are other things that need to be you know resolved and we you know
0: there's still holes there's still holes in the laws that you'd like to see closed.
1: Oh, yeah, there's lots of holes. and like okay. you said, I think from the time Susie disappeared to now, so much has happened for the older group of students the older group of people that you know through our laws um i i often get a phone call from an organization saying if it wasn't for suzanne's law you know uh this lady or this person would not have been able to get their child listed with the national center and you know an amber alert wasn't you know set out or whatever so you know it does make me proud and unfortunately Mm. my husband is no longer with us he's passed away last year and um so it's a little harder for me to do things but i'm still trying i'm still working at it i will until i find my daughter
0: okay uh mary i I can tell you i'm going to be praying for you i hope that my listeners uh, i hope my listeners are praying for you if if that's their belief system and uh, i know we're all going to do what we can to try to get this resolved for you we're not going to say closure but we're going to say resolved
2: Okay.
1: okay. Yes. That's the word you want to use. You do exactly. never want to use closure with a family with a missing right. person because there's never any closure if you yeah. think about it. It's not the same as a, when a person dies from a disease or natural death. Right. That's closure.
0: Right. It's not Mary, I, I've deeply enjoyed this interview and I can't I can't thank you enough for spending this time with me. Well, right. I thank
1: you also for even interviewing me. Oh. That's great. Thank oh, you so much.
0: You're welcome. And that was my August twenty second, twenty sixteen interview. And yes, I know the exact date. That was the interview with Mary Lyle, mother of Susie Lyle. I thank her for that interview, and I thank her even more for all the support she has shown over the entire seven years of Unfund's existence. Here are some of the disappearances Unfound has gotten to cover with Mary's assistance. Peggy and Patty McDaniel, Craig Freer, Nicholas Masucci, Brian Sullivan, Dominique Colley Grisham, and Audrey Heron. Now, before I reflect on some of the biggest Unfound moments, let's do this. Unfound News. I hope you will keep an unfound listener and his family in your thoughts and prayers. He, his wife, and two children were in a horrific car accident within the past two weeks. They will all recover eventually. However, Peter, and that is the listener's name, had his pelvis broken in five places. So it's going to be a long road back. Next I've scheduled an upcoming school appearance. I will be at Florida Southern College in Lakeland on September 20th. I'll be doing my presentation where I give the students the basics on disappearances. Finally, remember the date and time of September 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern. That's when Dr. Telesco and I start up our shows for the fall again. We'll be discussing the murder of Tyler North. Okay then, what are some of the big moments from the first seven years of Unfound? I will list these in chronological order from 2016 to the present. And yes, if you have additions to the list or if you'd like to argue with me about the list, please let me know by messaging me on social media or emailing me at unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. One thing before I get started, of course, resolutions to disappearances are always at the top of the list. So nothing that I'm going to name in this list has anything to do with resolutions. Those are always at the top. Just Those are just accepted. What I'm going to list here is everything else. I'm going to do this is very much how the update episode is done, where I just have a few notes in front of me, and then everything else I'm going to have to do off the top of my head because, once again, to type this all out would take hours and hours and hours, and I just don't have time for that. So I just have what I think are the main moments in Unfound's history. And then I will expound on them off the top of my head. So please bear with some pauses, you knows, errs, and ums, and things like that. First big moment in Unfound's history, other than, of course, the first episode, was the discussion group getting started somewhere in October or November of 2016. I started the podcast without any... Social media presence at all, believe it or not, and it wasn't even myself who came up with the idea for the discussion group that it still exists to this day on Facebook with almost nine thousand members. Uh, it was a listener, Jeremiah, uh, who <laughs> I still remember the, the message. He contacted me and says, "You know, I'd really like to start a group uh, for unfound listeners on Facebook. Can I do that?" I said. Yeah, Jeremiah, sure, spectacular. In fact, I'm sure – and he and I still talk to this day. I'm sure if we went way, way, way back into our messenger history, messenger history we would find uh, that original conversation. But he approached me about starting a discussion group, and uh, like I said, Unfound had no presence at all, anywhere. And I thought, sure, that does seem like a great idea. Good thinking, Jeremiah. And I can remember when there were only like 62 members in there, and now there are almost 9,000. It's crazy. But that was like the first big moment. Why, of course, because it was uh, Unfound's first entry, uh, first step into social media. Next big moment, and to remind you, this is going in chronological order. So we're kind of moving up here to March, April of 2017. So the discussion group, late 2016, and now we're into the spring of 2017. I would have to say is the episode on Peggy and Patty McDaniel. If you can believe it, when Unfound I first heard about their disappearances— from Mary Lyle, <clears throat> if you were to have done a search for Peggy and Patty online, now remember their disappearances occurred in 1979, you would have only been able to find one of their pictures. They weren't even listed on the Charlie Project. They might have been on NamUs, but they weren't listed on the Charlie Project. And if you did a Google search, you only find pictures for one of them. But after that uh, coverage, and because um, a, a listener, her name is Ray Lynn, really, really, really took an interest in this. How could two sisters go missing, and everybody, uh, you know, forgot about them? And of course, their disappearances are connected to a murder. By the time December of 2017 occurred, when Florida had its Missing Persons Day. These two girls went from hardly anybody remembering that they even existed to them being both of them being honored at Florida's Missing Persons Day, along with our mother Joyce Rovatuzo, who's now become a very good friend of mine. Her being uh, recognized as well at Florida's Missing Person Day just eight months later. It was a combination, of course, of Mary Lyle telling me about these two sisters who are missing together and then being told it's connected to a murder, which completely blew my mind. It still blows my mind. And then a listener take, take, taking a deep interest. It's, it's ex- like exactly what I hope to happen on every disappearance that Unfound covers. Unfortunately, sometimes that doesn't happen, but with this one, it certainly did And we took the disappearances of two girls from obscurity and made them very, very prominent to the point that they're – as you know from a couple months ago, and you heard from the update episode, when they find cars now here in Florida, people are now automatically thinking about Peggy and Patty McDaniel. It's just – it, it was, of course, they're still missing, and that's very sad. But this is the kind of stuff that I'm looking to do with this podcast, and so that was the first instance of that kind of thing happening. And uh, so it's a it's a huge moment in uh, Unfound's existence. That's why it's getting listed here, really putting Peggy and Patty McDaniel's disappearances on the map, going from obscurity to maybe being one of the, now the better-known, more well-known disappearances in Florida. It's really uh, incredible. Next big moment, and this is kind of all put together, but it it started here in about May of 2017, and that would be my assistance, starting with Emily, who is still with me uh, today. In fact, I was uh, messaging with her. Uh, Earlier today, I'm recording this on August 29th of 2023 as Hurricane Idalia is out there in the Gulf. But I just spoke with Emily earlier today. and But this started a trend that uh, Emily approached me after being turned down by another podcaster whose name will not be mentioned. Emily wanted to help out, and I said, I'll absolutely take the help. And from there, it was just she and I for a while… And then Sheree and Carrie and Heather and Eric and Natasha. now we have Kim and Misty. Uh, but that all got started in May of 2017 with Emily, and it's been uh, a, a really big deal. It, it really has. It, it, it affords – Me, the opportunity to kind of sit back on some things and allow them to do things, of course, like, for example, Cherie moderates the live show on Monday nights to make sure we don't have any trolls in there. But she's become a very close friend of mine, a confidant regarding just the overall picture of Unfound and the rest of them all uh, have vital roles. But it all started there in May of 2017 with Emily just messaging me out of nowhere and you should know to this to this point I've still never met Emily in person. <laughs> and I the only um the only two assistants that I've ever met in person are Eric and Heather. All the other ones I just know them over the internet, but I feel like I know them really well and I hope they feel the same way about me. So that's a big moment, the first assistant then leading to all of the other people who are volunteers who helped this podcast out. Next big moment, the live show. Kind of got YouTube started around the same time that the live show started, but you may remember, for all of you who go way, way, way back to the beginning, that the live show started on Facebook, and it was on Tuesdays. And then it was on Facebook, but I moved it to Wednesdays. And then it got totally moved to YouTube, I think maybe at the beginning of 2020 or maybe not. But it all started in October, November of 2017. So a year after, it took me a year uh, to figure out that, yeah, maybe I should be doing something on YouTube as well or Facebook, doing a live show if I had the time. So the discussion group. The fall of 2016, and then a full year later, I finally decided to add another social media outlet with the live show. But the live show has been spectacular. I love talking to all of you who have made the time now now that it's on Monday nights on YouTube. When we use StreamYard, it's on Facebook and YouTube together now. It's amazing all the ways it's moved around. And uh gotten to know many of you. I see people in there who, who never miss it. Who have never. I don't know if they've ever missed a live show, no matter what day or what medium or, or platform it was on. So it's been a big deal. It gives me a chance to talk about stuff that would not make it onto the podcast, get to little, reveal a little bit about my uh, life outside of Unfound that I think people um, enjoy hearing, and they love asking me questions. And it's been a great time. Still gets about the same amount of views. We're working on that now that we're using StreamYard. But I really believe that one of the reasons that Unfound has been successful is because, yes, I know all those podcasts that everybody go to CrimeCon, and they get to meet all, a lot of you in person. But that's once a year, whereas I'd like to think that we're all getting together. All of you have an opportunity to get together with me. Once a week. So um, the live show, a uh, big moment, uh, the creation of it, and it continues to run. I guess we're coming up on six years later uh, this fall. Uh, big moment in Unfound's history when I started doing that. Next big moment, and this would cover all of uh, 2018, and that would be working with the Tribune Review in pittsburgh and it wasn't even my idea it was uh the woman who runs tribtotal media her name is jennifer bertetto and uh we went to high school together although we weren't in the same class i think she was uh let's just say she was behind me in years i don't want to give away her age or anything with you know i don't want to get into that but she was not my class she's younger than i am And she approached me about doing something. She knew I was doing the podcast. She's always had an interest in disappearances herself. And so for the entire year of 2018, once a month, uh, with my help, they featured disappearances in the Pittsburgh area. So Western, really mostly Southwestern Pennsylvania, although we might have done one kind of in northern West Virginia there too. So that was a big deal. Uh, With a podcast being able to be linked with a very professional, very well-known, very high-profile media outlet like The Trib, it was a huge deal. And although I have to admit, maybe it didn't go exactly as I envisioned, but we got it done. I thought it went smoothly for that year, and in fact, a couple of those disappearances uh, eventually ended up becoming regular – um Unfound podcast episodes eventually in 2019, 2020. But it all started there working with the trib. So that whole 12 months of working with the trib was certainly a huge moment in Unfound's existence. Staying in the year 2018, uh maybe some of you, given that I'm doing this chronologically, you maybe know what's going to be next. But the disappearance of Tom Brown, we, of course, know that he was eventually uh, found. But the coverage of his disappearance, I look back at that, and I still never could have predicted the way it would go. I still insist that I covered his disappearance like everyone before it, like everyone since. There was just something about it. Did it was it because of who Tom was? Is it because of the video? Is it? I suppose there are a lot of different reasons, but it became a phenomenon, and I still remember the first time I was messaged. It was not his mother Penny who messaged me. It was somebody who knew her. Woman asked me, "Have you heard about this disappearance of uh, Tom Brown that occurred the day before Thanksgiving?" giving in 2016 so around that time this must have been around April of 2018 when she messaged me so a year and four or five months after he went missing is when I was first contacted and then ended up being an episode in in the summer like June of 2018 and I never could have guessed how much that coverage would put Tom Brown's disappearance kind of went from a very small northern Texas regional thing to then a uh, entire Texas thing, and, and now, of course it's a national thing, and I know that unfound gained a lot of listeners, a lot of people joining the discussion group and and uh because of that, but once again, I insist I did nothing uh different on his disappearance on his episode that I haven't done on any other just giving it. One hundred percent, but that was um, uh, a big deal, and it continues to be a big deal. I'm not going to get into everything that's happened since, but certainly, and you know, it's one of those things you kind of know it right away. This was not something that it occurred to me like six months down the road. As soon as it was out there. And if you'll remember, I got interviewed on that radio station by that radio host. It was right away. And then it kind of just continued. It had this kind of momentum. So that was a huge deal in uh, Unfound's existence. I could not talk about Unfound and all the work that's been done here without talking about that episode. To finish off 2018, uh, I can't. Talk about the history of unfound without talking, of course, about my mother's death. She died on november twenty eighth of twenty eighteen and uh, if you're looking at unfound's history as to where that falls, she died after the the disappearance the coverage of the disappearance of Robert Wayne Cox. And the first disappearance, the episode that came out after my mother's disappearance, was the disappearance of Luke, Lucas Degernes from Canada. As with any uh, death of someone you love very much, it has a profound effect on you. And for me, there was no bigger fan of Unfound than my mother. And uh, she was extremely proud of the work that I was doing, how I was going about it, trying to help these people whose lives have been devastated. And she took a deep interest in it. She would watch the YouTube live show. She had all the books, and she'd ask me about the disappearances and and all of these things. So it had a profound effect on me, and it's of course, still has a profound effect on me to this day. We're coming up on five years since her death in November, and as i've told everybody, I continue to do unfound with uh, the memory of my mother at at the, at the forefront that there was no doubt that when she passed away, that she knew that I was doing something that uh, I meant to do. she was very proud of it you know <laughs> i'm sure you know maybe um you know, before Unfound came along, she probably thought I would have made some different choices with what I'm doing with my life. Dare I say? But once I started doing this podcast, uh, I think that kind of attitude of hers changed. <laughs> I guess this was something she finally approved of, or something. But um, that it was a big moment in uh, Unfound's. Uh, existence and uh I mean why why how couldn't it be right so there you go that another big moment in unfound's history so now we're moving into twenty nineteen, and I think another big moment and it continues to be a big moment every Sunday evening is the think tank it's the only one of its kind where a bunch of people get together to talk about a disappearance in-depth, very small group, very private, everybody's opinions equal. I I run this forum. I am um, the ringleader. I, of course, set the agenda. I get to voice my opinions as well, of course, but I get to play a little bit of a devil's advocate as we go from one question to the next, what I call points to ponder. And it is amazing that how many people uh, have gotten involved in it and, and and continue to you know to love it. Of course, you have to be a Patreon member at the at the highest level, twelve dollars or twenty dollars a month through Patreon. But it's become a little club, a little bit like a combination, I guess, fraternity sorority. I, you should know for a long time it was me and. Uh, The rest of the people in there were women, but within like the six months, we have a couple guys who now um, regularly shop as Patreon supporters. Uh, You know who you are, Marty and Rockford, and so it's kind of like a combination for fraternity, sorority now. But we're always looking for new members, and it's just not you know people getting around to gab. What I do with the information there is that I can then go back to the guest and say, you know, I had this think tank – and here were some of the ideas that came out of it. So, um, this was a big moment. It, I have to tell you, it wasn't even my idea, as some of these things aren't. Uh, it was actually my assistant, uh, good friend Cherie's idea. I'm the person who named it. I'm the one who gave it the name of The Think Tank. But she was the one who came up with the idea of having uh, this forum. And, um... It's been good. We get together at 7 p.m. Eastern uh, on Sunday evenings. Uh, That gives these people plenty of time to have listened to the episode that came out the previous Friday or two days before. And we talk maybe for about an hour and 15 minutes. And whereas in the episodes, there's no theorizing. And in fact, you know know how kind of not 100% strict, maybe 95% strict I am on that. <clears throat> in episodes and with the guests, but it's the exact opposite in the think tank. We let it fly. So if you'd like to be a member, patreon.com forward slash Unfound Podcast. The creation of that, a huge moment in Unfound's existence. Next big moment, and just like with the Trib for all of 2018, uh, this is something that went on during the entire year of 2019, and that was my own work behind the scenes for The Disappearance of Cameron Remmer. I was assisted by Cherie and my other assistant, Eric, who also did some work uh, here on this, but uh, it was kind of, um, dare I say, a little bit of an experiment on my part. I thought that I needed to be able to identify with the the guests, these guests who are doing this work on, on their own, how you go about trying to dig up information years after the disappearance has occurred. And so I took it upon myself. I met... Cameron's mother, not in person but over the phone, Cameron's mother early in 2019, and I said, you know what? I'm going to work on this. You give me these names, and, and the good part about his disappearance is they had a, a ton of information. His family did a ton of work. The, the phone records, for example, are some of the most complete and very technical in-depth that I've ever seen to, even to this day. And so they had a lot of notes, and they sent it all to me. And so I just went about doing it behind the scenes on my own for all the entire year of 2019. I went back and spoke and tracked down some of these people who actually had encountered Cameron that night at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco. The bellhop, this guy who ran like a restaurant or a club inside – the The hotel I tracked these people down and talked and talked to them. I talked uh to this woman that cameron young woman that Cameron had encountered at one point uh there as well, talking to all of them and then uh even to the point where I was with the help of a of a security guy who didn't work there anymore, I was able to track him down. He doesn't even live in California, I don't think, anymore. But I was able to track him down, and he was actually able to give me the name of the two security guards who were on duty that night when this all happened with Cameron. And uh, as was detailed in the Cameron Remmer Remmer episode that came out at the end of 2019, those two guys did not like being contacted at all. To the point that the one that I reached out to ended up sending Cameron's mother a message telling me that I'm a kook, I'm making stuff up, that she should distance her, herself from me. And my assistant, Cherie, uh, contacted the other security guard, and he didn't want to talk to her either. And these, this was uh, a revelation uh, regarding this, I think, for… Cameron's family so this was an entire thing what does it take if you are a private person you don't have the power of the state for subpoenas and warrants and everything else what is it like to do something like this well now I know and I can speak from a point of you know I did this myself and here are some of the things that I ran into problems and everything I can now convey that to my guests when I give them advice. So, and then of course the Cameron Remer episode came out at the end of 2019, and I think it still sets the record for the longest episode in Unfound's existence, uh, I think. So, um, all that during 2019, a huge moment in Unfound's existence. And if you're asking me, do I think that those security guards could add something to do with Cameron Remer's disappearance? The answer is yes. Moving on. So now that we're into the year 2019, uh, you should probably be able to predict what's coming up next, and that is Steve Pankey, a guy that I'd never heard of before until he contacted me in August of 2019. He was first a Patreon supporter, and then one day he just came out and revealed who he actually was. I just knew him as Steve and then he told me his entire story, that he was suspected in the <clears throat> in the murder of Janelle Matthews. Her remains had been found in July of 2019. And uh, people have asked me, did you know about Janelle Matthews? I probably ran across her name at one point or another, being that I do so much missing persons reading, and I've done so much over years, well before unfound. Uh, ever existed I'm sure I came across her name at least once I don't specifically remember that but when I found out the details oh, she was at home and then she wasn't home when her parents got home and it's in Colorado it kind of all rang a bell but I don't know if I could have ever put it together with the name Janelle Matthews but all of you know what happened uh, it's just uh, he I interviewed him this internet, this is just kind of like going back to Tom Brown, where you do something and you don't really know. You just do it like you'd do anything else, but for some reason, it goes in a in a in a unique direction. This is kind of what happened with Steve. Now, granted, Steve was a unique guest and is the, a one of a kind guest, being that he was a suspect in a murder, at least at that point, just a suspect, and that. Interview that I did with him for over three hours, it's easily for me the interview that I've listened to the most since it came out, and it's certainly the interview that I think the public uh, has heard the most of. Maybe not the entire thing, but snippets given that – what was it, 48 hours or whatever, Dateliner used parts of it. We got. I uh, just did within the last month. I was interviewed for um, taking the stand. It's going to be coming out next year, where I talk about my interaction with Steve. Where part of the interview is going to be played. Been working with a, a a company in England. They're working on a series of Janelle Matthews's murder. That whole thing, obviously, one of the big moments in Unfound's history, and just like. A lot of this other stuff, not necessarily something that was on my mind. It was something that kind of just came to me. I didn't seek Steve out. I didn't even know he existed. He came to me. When we get back to Tom Brown and how that'll – this is not a situation as often happens where we, myself or Emily, Sharia, whoever, are reaching out to people. Somebody reached out to me. These kind of things just fall into Unfound's lap. And then they become these big deals, Um, and that's certainly what happened with Steve Pankey. Then we talk about the trials, and you now know that Steve eventually got convicted the second time around in October of 2022. And uh, if you don't know, I've become kind of – started a pen pal uh, writing exchange with Steve. I wrote him uh, a letter in July. He responded to me in August. And I sent out the second letter to him, and I read that letter on a live show, by the way, if you'd be interested to hear what Steve had to say. Kind of didn't really answer anything that I put in that first letter, but anyway. But I just sent out – so you can hear what he said on on a recent live show on YouTube. You can track it down. And then I sent out a second letter to him. When was it? Not quite a week ago. So maybe around August 23rd or something like that. I sent him a second letter. So I'm corresponding with him as he is in the Belt County Jail in Colorado. And unless something goes differently, he'll be there for the rest of his life. So the Janelle Matthews murder – and then my interaction with Steve Pankey, a huge moment in Unfound's history. We now get into the year 2020. Of course, this is COVID time. And I, I have to say, looking back retrospectively, did not affect the podcast at all. I mean, I'm a homebody anyway, and of all people who are um, – you know, social, and I, I'm still a social person. Given that I spend most of my time at home, COVID did not really affect me at all. And the only one time it affects, affected me a couple times a week is when I'd have to go buy food and wear a mask. That was about it. But what went on in 2020? Do all of you remember? This is what I still call the most shocking moment in Unfound's history, and that is the finding. Of course, I didn't find it, but the discovery, the finding of Eric Franks' car. We could maybe, there's some other surprises that have happened over Unfound's existence, but to me, this continues to be number one. Of course, Eric is still missing. But that his car was still in one piece, that it was in running condition, that it sat in that uh, Gerald Rutledge's car, a garage for all those years, then it got auctioned off. And a guy, it wasn't in Ohio, ended up having it. And uh, so, uh, a young woman in California periodically would put the VIN of the car into Carfax, and then suddenly it came up because the car got a oil change done on it. Crazy. Nobody could have predicted that. That's what makes disappearances so difficult. That is to me the number one surprise, the number one shocking moment in unfound's existence, to me. Um, Surely Esther Westenbar- Westenbarger being found in her car in that pond? A little bit of surprise, but I still insist that I know more about disappearance at the time like I know now. Maybe I could have predicted that. And you might have a different most shocking uh, moment. Maybe uh, Pine Gregory coming across Tom Brown's uh, remains. Maybe that's your most shocking moment. For me, it's Eric Franks' car because there's not one person who really believed that it was still in one piece, running condition. People had to believe it was at the bottom of the, of a lake with maybe Eric in it or it had been parted out or something. And here it was sitting in that garage that whole time. And I still insist If I would have been able to put together Kendra caring for Gerald Rutledge just because of the way I am, I would have done – for whatever reasons, just the way my mind works, I would have done a street view or Google Earth view just to see where this guy lived in relation to where Eric was staying in that motel and where Kendra lived. Just for that alone, I probably would have gone to a map, but I know I would have noticed on a street view how – the garage door, the disconnected garage to Gerald's house in the back, before Eric went missing, it had a garage door with windows. After Eric went, after Eric disappeared, that garage door was changed to one that was had no windows. If I'd have known if I'd have known Kendra was connected to Gerald Rutledge, I think I would have been able to put that all together. I think it would have been able to said. I bet that car is in that garage. I know I would have noticed it because I notice these things. It's just the way my mind works. Oh baby, um, just uh, um, you know something I missed. But fortunately, the car was found. It easily could have been auctioned off and could be on the road today. And nobody would have known. So we just have to be thankful that. Whoever the, and I think uh, they did an article on this uh, person who did that, who figured that out. Uh, congratulations to that person. That's spectacular. That's great work. I mean, just sh- chef's kiss on that. But Eric Franks' car, being, what was that, September of 2020, sho- most shocking moment in Unfund's existence. Unfortunately, nothing has transpired since then. So we now move to… 2021. And really, this is something that was supposed to start in 2020, but because of COVID, it didn't. But I finally got to start going to schools and doing my presentations. And uh, the first one I ever did was at Northwestern State in Louisiana. My brother went with me. We had a great road trip, driving up there and back, a great time. Uh, He got to kind of see behind the scenes of my podcast because yeah, my brother does not help me with it at all. But he got to see my vision of speaking to criminal justice majors, and I, I just, I'm not sure what he was thinking. <laughs> okay, we're going to go up, and you're going to do what? I, mean, I know you do this podcast edit and everything, but what exactly are you doing? But after he saw it, he was like, oh, I get it. Very interesting. And since then... Uh, this is how Dr. Telesco and I uh, got to know each other. We'll do this Now we do this show on her YouTube channel once a month, and I've gone to Nova Southeastern University twice now uh, to speak, and I videoed it, and some of you have seen that. I've gone to Florida Southern College once. I'm going to be going there again. I've gone down to Florida International University. I think I'm going to be going there again uh, later this year, maybe in November. That all got started in 2021, and that is all in that direction of education. You know me. I'm all about educating people about disappearances, especially educating those people who one of these days might be responsible for resolving them, investigating them and if i can just put that little bit of a nugget in their head that they don't forget remember that guy that long-haired guy who was dressed all in black and came to talk that day i remember what he said about this and now i'm a sheriff of a county or uh or, or i'm an fbi agent i remember that guy because these people otherwise don't get any missing persons education at all zero but if my presentation can stick out and i can stick out and that memory of just that hour and a half that I'm up in front of there, it, I think it can change. I think it can change somebody's life out there. A person who is suffering from a disappearance, miss a daughter, you know, missing a daughter and son, it can change something. So these continue to be uh, a big focus. And like I said, I think I'm going to be doing at least three of. I'm going to see if I'm, I'm going to Nova Southeastern or not. But certainly I'll be doing at least two this coming semester, if not three, maybe more, uh, Just because uh, I've reached out to just a few colleges within the last few days within driving distance. So that has been a big moment. Getting that finally going after COVID went away, uh, really I felt good about that. Big moment. And then what I would say is the last big moment, and this occurred at the end of twenty twenty two. So Ed, are you saying there haven't been any big moments in twenty twenty three? Well, not yet. You know, sometimes maybe these things take uh a little bit of time to fully show. Like with Peggy and Patty McDaniel, it took a little while before it became what it became at the end of twenty seventeen. Tom Brown, the summer of and took a little while before it became what it became. So maybe we're still in that kind of place in 2023 where nothing has made the big moment list quite yet, but maybe something that's already been done this year eventually will. But the last one uh, I would put on the list is my in-depth coverage  … … of Keith Collins and Sandra Haley's disappearances, of course, connected uh, this whole phenomenon of the Colonial Parkway murders and the way it was a two-part episode and how I think I went fact by fact to show that pretty much these murders and the disappearances of Keith and Sandra should not be seen as being connected at all. It certainly seems like it's a weird quick quirk of statistics, but there are enough facts about each of the murderers and then Keith and Sandra's disappearances to believe that they are all really not connected at all. And really, the reason they got put all together is it was be just easier, I think, for reporters at the time when this was all going on, to just report on them all as one instead of looking at each as a separate incident. I think that's what happened. But then you know how that – what occurs for the public. Oh, we got a serial killer. I'm telling you there was no serial killer on the Colonial Parkway at the time of those murders and and Keith and Sandra's disappearances. Not at all. In fact, when you look at them individually – You'll see that they were all – they weren't done by some strangers. They were all done by people who surely knew their victims, including Sandra and Keith, by the way. And uh, took took some crap for that, including the guy who has gained a lot of fame by writing a book about the Colonial Parkway murders. He totally thinks I'm crazy and uh, everything else, but – I know what I'm talking about. He's the person who wrote that book for entertainment value, ignoring a lot of stuff. I don't ignore things. So I think I really – even though it's still a, a Wikipedia page, The Colonial Parkway Murders, anybody who really takes an interest in it, goes on YouTube, does a search, comes across, or on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, takes an interest in that. My presentation is just a little different, but it surely makes more sense than all the others. And so I think that given it was such a high-profile mystery, and it continues to be to this day for over 30 years, to kind of jump into that and factually show why everybody should be looking at it in a different way instead of seeing it in a sensational way, looking in a very constructive way, very critical way. I think that was a big moment, continues to be a big moment in Unfound's existence. So that is my list. What is your list? What are those big moments from Unfound's history? Once again, resolutions, uh, the conviction of Carlos Rodriguez… Uh, you know, Dennis Bowman, Esther Westenbarger being found in that retention pond. Any resolutions don't count. They're always top list. Always. Always, always, always. But other than that, what would you put on this list? Please let me know by either emailing me unfoundpodcast at gmail.com or you can find uh you can post something in the discussion group. Maybe we can have a good discussion about that on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. Wherever else uh, I may be and you may be, you let me know your big moments in Unfound's seven-year history. And that's the program. Right now, while you are in your podcast platform, Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, wherever, give Unfound a five-star review, a thumbs up, whatever that platform allows. I thank you for listening. I'm at Denzel. And you've just finished this episode of Unfound.